to our teaching this morning. Uh, this morning we continue our teaching series, Church People. And what we're doing uh, over these several weeks is we're exploring the book of Revelation, which is probably one of the more complicated books in the Bible. I think, in fact, it's probably the most complicated because there's a lot that goes into Revelation. And what we're doing is we're zeroing in on these first couple chapters where Jesus gives John letters to write to the churches. He tells them, uh, he tells John what to write to these seven churches in what is today Asia Minor, Turkey area. And these seven churches are all facing different uh, kinds of situations, different kinds of persecutions and discomforts. And Jesus has some good things to say about these churches. He also has some critiques for them as well. And so we're looking over these churches and kind of reflecting on where our church might fit in here, where we can kind of see ourselves in these churches, that we could see our culture in these situations, those types of things. And we're exploring what Jesus might have to say to us in 2022 in the Sauk Valley based on this, these great letters that he wrote uh, to the churches there. And today we are looking at the letter to the church in Thyatira, uh, in Thyatira, what we're going to see today is a lot like Pergamum that we heard about last week when Pastor Ben taught on that letter. So there's a lot of the similar things going on. One of the differences is that in Thyatira, everything's just ratcheted up a little bit more. It's a little bit more intense. It's a little bit more hard-hitting. Some of the good things that they're doing is like a little bit better, but also some of the bad things are like worse. And so what we see is it's kind of like Pergamum, but it's going to be ratcheted up just a little bit. But they're facing a similar situation where they are uh, desiring and asked to combine Christian practices, Christian worship with some cultural practices and cultural worship. They're in the midst of a city that is not Christian at all, and they're facing pressure to become more like their neighbors. And so we're going to hear some of the similar kinds of issues as we did last week uh, with a couple of, of new insights I think that Jesus can give us this morning. So we begin uh, this letter this way, and this is going to sound a lot like the rest of the letters that we've read so far. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. This letter begins like all the other letters. It begins with Jesus. And what Jesus has to say is, I'm the man. I'm the one. And here, he uses this unique phrase. This is the only time it's found in Revelation. He says, I am the Son of God. And we hear that Jesus is the Son of God in lots of places in the Bible. This is the one time that he like, makes a point to say it in Revelation. So it's important. He's making a statement here. He is the one. He is the all-powerful, almighty God. And there is no one else like him. And he continues on, he says, who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And here we run into one of the complications of Revelation, is that Revelation, as Jesus gives this revelation to John, Jesus likes to use these images that are a little strange, a little freaky, and they communicate some truth about what's going on in the world around them. So here, when Jesus says this, of course we read this and we know Jesus doesn't have literal fire for eyes, right? He doesn't have literal bronze for feet. It's some image that he's giving to reveal some truth about him. It's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor, or in this case, it's actually a simile. But he's giving some image to evoke 
some truth about himself. And in this case, it's kind of interesting because this is unique to Thyatira. Thyatira was a community maybe not unlike Sterling and Rock Falls. They were known for their smelting of metal and crafting fine goods. Maybe they were the hardware capital of Asia Minor, right? Kind of like Sterling and Rock Falls is the hardware capital of the world. So they had these furnaces that burned brightly, that they would smelt bronze and other metals to create weapons and armor, tools, and other goods. Jesus here is making two claims about himself. One, he's the man. He is the son of God. He's the almighty. He is, he is everything. He is the alpha and the omega. Secondly, he is putting himself up against the culture of Thyatira. That he is, the, he is like Thyatira. He has eyes like fire. He has feet that are sturdy like bronze, except he's better. He's more powerful. He's placing himself up and against what the culture would have known. Another interesting thing is that the city of Thyatira, they worshiped a local deity that called himself the Son of God. So Jesus here is placing himself up and against the culture of this community that this church finds itself in, in Thyatira. And he's saying this, I am better. I am more powerful. I am more mighty. I am more holy than your culture, than the culture that surrounds you. And he still says that to us today. So for the Christians in Thyatira, what he's trying to evoke right now is that it all starts with him. And then he continues. And he gives them some good things that they do, some good notes. He says, I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. This is some pretty high praise, and actually it's probably one of the, one of the highest praise he gives any of the churches in these first seven letters. He says, I know your works, and you do everything right. You love, you are faithful, you serve, you patiently endure. And in fact, not only do you do those things well, when you started out, you were doing them well, but now your last works, your most recent ones, are even better. They're even greater. You're growing, and everything you touch is successful. Everything that you put your hand to works. You are loving well. You are serving well. You are doing everything well. All of your works, they're awesome. They're really, really good. Some high praise from Jesus. He says, the works that you do, they're good. They're great, even. And then he offers the critique. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. So they're doing everything right, but the problem is that there is someone or maybe a group of people in their church that they tolerate. They're okay with them being there. And Jesus calls them uh, that woman Jezebel. Now again, we're in Revelation, and so oftentimes we have images, and those images are trying to evoke some other truth behind the image. So Jezebel, you may know that word, you may know that title or that, uh, in, in our case, it's, in our culture, it's almost a slur, um, and usually when you call someone a Jezebel, which I pray that you have never actually called someone a Jezebel, if you call someone a Jezebel, probably what you're saying is that it is, they are some sort of loose woman who preys on men 
to get them to do bad things, right? That's kind of how we use that phrase now. Jezebel is a character from the Old Testament. She was a queen, in fact, of Israel. She was married to King Ahab. You can read this story in the Kings. And uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel together uh, did some really blasphemous, horrible things to God's people in God's kingdom. So as they ruled over the kingdom of Israel, they looked around their culture and they said, man, there are some really nice things that our neighbors do. They get to like sleep with whoever they want. And in fact, they get to actually like sleep with prophets and prophetesses in order to worship their gods. And so what they did is that they actually began to integrate Baal worship and other blasphemous practices into their worship of Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel. And God punished them for this. Both Ahab and Jezebel were killed and were afflicted for doing this. So this story that Jesus is invoking by using this phrase, that woman Jezebel, that's what he's trying to get the Thyatiran Christians to remember. Now in Revelation, there are some times that, that Jesus evokes a particular image that has a very clear, the text gives us exactly what that image is supposed to be. For example, we are told that there is a lamb who has been slaughtered. So its throat is slit and it's all bloodied. And in the text of Revelation, it is clear, without a doubt, we are told explicitly that is Jesus, right? So there's no question who the lamb is. We're also told there is a dragon. And this dragon is told, we are told specifically that is the devil. Sometimes there are images presented to us that have very, very clear correspondence to something else. Sometimes we are given images, and in the text, we are not given a lot of clarity about what these images represent. This is one of those times. So we are told about, quote unquote, that woman Jezebel, but we actually don't know who this person was. We don't know if it was actually a woman, or if it was a man, or if it was a group of people. We simply don't know, and there's no context clues to give us any real understanding of what's happening here. So we need to be true to the text. We need to be careful and actually just read what the text says. So what we can know for sure about this situation is that there was a person or a group of people probably in power in the church, either some sort of leader or a pastor or possibly the wife of a pastor or bishop or whatever it might be, there's some person or people who is in power who is teaching false teachings, who call themselves a prophet and say that they are speaking for God on God's behalf. And they are teaching and they are drawing the other Christians in the area, in their church, to believe falsely and specifically to do a couple of things, to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now again, we don't know for sure exactly what those two practices mean or if that's just a representation of whatever it is. But for sure, what we can know is that these, this individual or these, this group of people, they were leading God's people to practice a way of life and to practice worship that was blasphemous and not honoring God. They were bringing in practices from their neighbors. Probably they were practicing the worship of other gods in those types of things. That's what this individual or this group of people were doing. And Jesus gives some serious warnings about what this means. But I like here that it says, I gave her time to repent. Even this individual or this group of people, whoever they were, 
They were given time. Jesus was patient with them in allowing them time to repent. And that's going to be a theme we hear again. So here's the warning. Jesus says, beware, I am throwing her on a bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. So here's the warning. I will throw her on a bed. This is probably like a euphemism for sickness. It's probably what this is. So he's going to cause distress and affliction on this person. And those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. This is the warning. There's this teaching, this false teaching that wants to combine what's going on, all the temple worship out there in the culture, wants to combine that with the Christian faith, with the gospel. And if you go down this road, it's not going to end well. There's opportunity to repent. You can turn away. But if you keep pursuing this thing, it's not going to end well for you. Ultimately, it's going to end in death. And then Jesus says this, And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. And specifically, what Jesus says is that these individuals who are following this teaching, they're doing, quote-unquote, her works. They're doing the works of the person that they're following. They're following along in the path of this individual or group of people who's taking the culture and combining it with the gospel and therefore watering down and ruining the gospel, making it a non-gospel gospel. And this people who are walking in the way of this individual or group of people, they're walking toward destruction. They're walking toward death. Because depending on what path you're on, you're going to get the rewards of that path. One path leads to destruction. This path leads to destruction. But there is another path. And this is what, how Jesus continues. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, and we're kind of condensing this passage, so forgive me for that. For the rest of you in Thyatira, hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end. So here he offers another path, another way. To the rest of you who aren't following in the way of this group of people who are false, or this person who's you know, giving false teachings, hold fast. Continue on in what you are doing until I return, until the second coming. To everyone who conquers, and here's that conquering language again, which means faithfulness. That's what that means in Revelation. To everyone who continues to do my works. There's the works of Jesus, the path, the way of Jesus, in the way of these false teachings of taking the culture and combining it with the gospel. And this is the promise that he gives. I will give authority over, to, over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my Father to the one who conquers, I will give the morning star. And so here Jesus does maybe a loose quote or an allusion uh, to Psalm 2, which is a great psalm, by the way. But this, what this first phrase is, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod. This is like really good Old Testament, you know, Jesus prophecy type stuff. The whole Old Testament is pointing to this king, this priest that's going to be born, that's going to rule over Israel, that's actually going to rule over 
all the nations, the whole world, with peace and justice and mercy. The Old Testament keeps pointing to this again and again. This person is called the Messiah, the anointed one. And of course, Jesus takes that place. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is given from his Father authority over all the nations. And the promise to those who conquer, the promise to those who hold fast is that they get to do his work, that they have authority, that they can rule over the nations. And this is Eden language. Have dominion over the earth and subdue it. It's setting things right the way that they're supposed to be set up. And here with an iron rod is when clay pots are shattered. It's, it's God striking down those who are powerful. God striking down those who have authority in order for those who are lowly to be lifted up and to rule over the earth in a way that is just and right and merciful as we look forward into the future. To those, to the one who conquers, there's that conquering language again, this is the promise. I will give the morning star. Which the morning star shows up a couple times in scripture. Um, and the morning star is the last star that you see. Right, as the sun's coming up, this is the brightest star that you can see on the horizon. And the morning star really represents glory or splendor, is what it represents in scripture and in those ancient cultures in the ancient Near East. It represents glory and good things. In fact, in Revelation, Jesus is called the morning star. It's this glorious and, and splendor future that is offered. And to those who receive, uh, to those who conquer, that is, I will give the morning star. Jesus is pointing forward. He's saying to those who walk in my ways, to those who do my works, who rule and do their work the way that they're supposed to, the way that I did my work, they're going to have this glorious future. Because for those who do the works of Jesus, not only do they have the works of Jesus, but they also have the future of Jesus. This new heaven and this new earth to live forever as new creatures who get to do, continue to do Jesus' work by caring for and subduing the earth and worshiping God freely. That's the future, the glorious future that's out there ahead of us. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. We're given two paths here. The way of the Jezebel that looks at the culture and says, man, there are some good things out there. So maybe I'll take a little bit of that, even though I know it doesn't really honor God. Maybe I'll take a little bit of that, or maybe I'll twist God's word to kind of fit into this cultural norm. And you kind of pull that in. And there's the way of Jesus, whose works are full of love and service and faith and patient endurance. Because as we look out in our world, and in our culture specifically, there are some good things that we see, right? There's a little bit of overlap with the gospel. But there are also some things that we see that we know are not of God, that we know do not honor God. The way the world approaches how we ought to work, how we ought to think about others, the competitive, egomaniacal way that we approach our lives, we know that these things don't honor God. Sometimes we put our faith into whatever it might be, the, uh, a political identity or a political individual or even a sports team or a cultural idea. We buy into these things and we look out and we say, those things are really nice. I would like that. And so we take it and we combine it with the gospel instead of letting the gospel stand as it is. And so we, as the people of God, as the transformed, spirit-filled people of God, the reality is even though we ought to love and face our world with compassion and empathy, the reality is we ought to be a little bit different from them. 
we ought to be a little odd compared to our neighbors. Because what dominates the spirit-filled life, what dominates the transformed life, is things like love and joy and faith and patient endurance. All the fruits of the spirit. This life that is uniquely different to the kind of cynical, depressed, bitter world that we face. Our lives are different. And it doesn't matter what you do in this life. It doesn't matter if you are a business owner or if you are like a state politician or if you're the mayor or if you're the sheriff all the way down to the pizza delivery boy or the gas station attendant part-time. It doesn't matter what you do. The way that you go about that is what Jesus is concerned with. Is the way that you do your work full of love and peace and joy and all the others. Because it doesn't really matter what you do. What matters is the way that you go about it. And he offers us to continue in these works, to continue in love, to continue in hope, to continue in joy in all of these things. That's the invitation this morning. And here's what I love about this passage, is that twice it is mentioned that those who are obstinately working against God are offered an opportunity to repent. God is really bad at holding a grudge. And in fact, God says that he will forgive our sins for his sake. He will turn his face away from them and he will forget them. As he looks out into our glorious future, as he looks out into the morning star of our future, he knows that we're going to stumble. He knows that we're going to get weak. He knows that we're going to fail from time to time. And he is always there, always ready to pick us up, to dust us off, and to help us repent, to continue along this way in doing the work of Jesus. This is the future that we are offered. This is the future that he invites us into, is to continue his work and create love and faith and service and patient endurance, whatever it is that we do. Amen.